Justice is not the vehicle through which communities and individuals acquire liberty. To harness justice to this task, mankind would need to possess an inalienable right to be free. Such a position as is, is, is as preposterous as it is unworkable. Rejecting freedom as an unalienable right is not equivalent to saying slavery is not an injustice. However, the injustice of slavery is not based on the inalienable right of all men to be free. Slavery is unjust because one person's body is that person's property, and it is unjust to claim or possess property belonging to another. This does not equate to inalienable rights to be free, however, other than from limited and specific right not to be treated as someone else's property. It was noted by many writers that the emancipated slave was hardly free because he was free on paper, emancipated, as the liberators put it. The claim to liberty seemed satisfied, but the issue of justice remained. No other person has a claim on us as our own personal property. We are our own belongings. No one has the right to enslave his brother. This ought not to be seen as suggesting there is something sublime about human freedom. Our personal liberty and freedom is no more or less than the freedom and liberty of a tree or a house. We as bodies are physical and property, and no physical property can be willfully claimed by anyone. Our freedom has nothing to do with pretensions to liberty or inalienable rights to be free. We are property, but we are not the property of other persons. No one can lay claim to our being. We are free in that sense, in that sense only. We are free of the ownership claims of other people. This being said, if your position is that physical things can be owned by possession, that is, by seizure and force of arms, then enslavement is a possibility by virtue of your argument that power, seizure, is a valid form of possession, that force leg legitimizes ownership. If you believe that, then those who are stronger than you or who have more power than you can by your own terms, enslave you. If a boat can sail up to an island and claim this land for the boat's owner or the man's sovereign, then there is the distinct possibility that the people on the island will be considered seized property as well. The purists may attempt to create a firewall between rocks, water, and human beings, but it is art as, artif as artificial as the line between free person and slave. It's a weak line of poor defense and easily breached, especially if you base your ownership claims on power. No one believes freedom is a right. 
Some say it, but no one believes it. Jailing the miscreant is not morally wrong. Impeding an offender from committing crime or escaping justice is not ethically wrong. If even these statements are considered valid, then any claim to an intrinsic right to freedom has just been invalidated. When a heroic figure exclaims, Give me freedom or give me death, he is rarely demanding freedom. He may think he wants freedom, but even if he does want freedom, it is a very circumscribed and limited sort of freedom that he wants, and he ought to have been more careful about defining what he actually is after. What people want, really, is justice. When the people of England struggled free of the confines of medieval serfdom, and the people of the U.S. extricated themselves from the monarchy that was enjoyed by the British, they were achieving freedom of a very specific and limited kind. The freedom from the king was replaced with fealty to the flag and office of the president. This is not freedom, regardless of what you may call it. It's just a different kind of subjugation. The peasants of England shook off serfdom, but they still owed allegiance to the crown, and they were compelled to comply with all of Britain's laws and regulations. It is interesting that the revolution in the U.S. was precipitated, conceptually at least, by the phrase, no taxation without representation. The revolutionaries, at least on paper, were not asking for freedom absolutely, nor even freedom from taxation. They just wanted to say in what taxes they were to pay. This is a justice issue. It's not a freedom issue. It is couched in the language of freedom, but absolute freedom was not what the people were after. Perhaps speeches asserting Americans did, did not want to pay taxes to England, but to its own government, was not an inspiring call to arms. It wouldn't have motivated people to the degree needed for a revolution. What is liberty that it plays such a central role in our thinking? What are we trying to free ourselves from? Some might say all restriction and all boundaries and all limitations that seem onerous to us. These people are idealists, and idealists they are, who argue man ought to work to abolish all hindrances to man's freedom. But this is more sloppy thinking, and ultimately, an unproductive use of language. If we had no restrictions, we, as humans, would not be. We would have no identity. We are humans because we have a definition, and definitions require entities with boundaries, limits, and contained extensions. If we had freedom in all directions, we would be omniscient, and we would be omnipotent. This works well for God, but if God is om omnipotent, fleshy creatures certainly are not. Certainly not all persons can be of infinite and unlimited power, which has to be a serious problem for those who think mankind is destined to evolve into a super kind of being. Things were bad enough and we needed clubs to bludgeon things into submission. 
What would it be like in a universe where beings destroyed things simply by a petulant glance at them or at it is anyone's guess. If this is true, if there are inbuilt limitations to our freedom, what does it mean to say that freedom is an unmitigated and unbounded good? Liberty is expressed as a first-order principle, yet we are all quite ready to limit and can, can curtail it when it suits us. Even that universal right to free speech is hemmed in by so many qualifications. It looks more like the life of a six-year-old with an anal retentive parent than a right. No one can explain how we all have a right to free speech when we do not have the right to free speech and nobody wants to give it. If we cannot even tolerate free speech in the absolute, do we imagine that we can tolerate freedom? Perhaps this, would, this world needs less toleration of hypocrisy. Now look at the other ex now look at the other extreme to absolute freedom. Imagine a child wanting freedom from its parents. This is a meaningless demand. A child is in no position to be free, and if it is to be cared for, which it has to be, there is no one better able to care for it than its parents. Imagine then a situation in which two persons are in a relationship and one is working and one is not. The employed person demands the unemployed person do the housework. The unemployed person responds, as so many others have done before him, with a remark to the effect that he will have freedom or he will have death. Does the response make any sense? How about if the employed person tells the unemployed person he wants to be free of the freeloader? Does this make sense? Absolutely. This brings us to the real nature of freedom. There are only two classes of freedom. There is freedom from and there is freedom to do. Freedom from may mean freedom from an injustice, such as freedom from someone who does not wish to do their share. This makes the issue a justice issue, not a freedom issue, a desire for freedom from obligations or an attempt to be liberated from the cost one creates is rarely posed as a freedom issue. Your freedom is an injustice in this case, an attempt to impose your cost onto others, and so it is made into a justice issue. That is, no one can say they want to be liberated from the need to earn a living. So they make claims that the terms of earning a living are unjust. It is called the formation of a social agenda in which an, in, an imaginary injustice is fought against to enable the person to freeload off of others. One either earns one's way or one piggybacks off the earnings and efforts of others. There are no middle positions here, no logical other options other than these two. One is just, one position is just, and the other position is unjust. That's it. One path rejects freedom for justice. The other path rejects justice for freedom. 
the taxes of England were an injustice when looked at from the perspective of the revolutionaries. They were an injustice imposed on the colonies and a freedom claimed by the monarch. The desire of the king to be free of the rebels was a desire based on the divine right of kings to impose costs without granting to the victim the right of redress. The divine right of kings is the ultimate freedom of this world, and it accentuates the injustices of freedom, or that are done in the name of freedom. Freedom is either consistent with justice and becomes an issue of justice, or it is not consistent with justice. But this makes it even more an issue for justice to resolve. Can we have freedom without justice? And indeed, can we have justice and freedom? Or they are irreconcilable. How can anyone be free of the costs of his or her life without imposing these costs onto someone else? Life has costs. How does anyone have obligations on them? And what they have imposed by external agents without that obligation being an injustice. This becomes even more clear when we understand that the only legitimate basis for ownership is authorship. If we did not create it, or if we did not cause it to come into being, we can have no claim on it. We can have freedom from, or the freedom to do, but neither has meaning unless we understand the right of ownership. We have freedom from others because we have a right to what we own, to what we create, a right no one has a basis on which to challenge. We either have a right to own what we create or we do not, and if we do, no one can challenge us without us being able to similarly challenge them which is only good if you do not create anything. If you're a creator, you have to respect the rights of others. We have freedom to do only within the context of what we own. No one has a right to do when it involves what we created. Just as we have no right to do, that impinges upon the ownership rights of others. Our right to do ends at the border of what we ourselves are authors of. It's like we are all in our own story. We author our own narrative, and this defines the limit of our power, our authority. The right of ownership is objective. It is a fact that can be established legally, morally, and logically. Not all ownership claims, of course, but legitimate ownership claims can be proven and also are impungible. Ownership is defined by authorship. All other ownership claims, usually based on possession, are impungible. All claims and costs against what is owned by someone other than the author can also be measured and accounted for in an objective economic sense. If justice is founded on ownership, an objective, quantifiable, and scientific, verifiable theory of justice is possible. 
without a scientific theory of justice. There is no justice. There is no peace. An objective system of justice is, however, not consistent with the world's position on liberty. According to the theory of justice, one strives for liberty in only one of two ways. Either one is an owner claiming his or her inalienable right of ownership, or one is a freeloading freeloader demanding freedom from the owner's cost of their own parasitic existence. This is the case for the courts because no matter how uncomfortable the impact of indolence is, the discomfort is just not unjust and does not grant anyone the right to file an injunction against nature or natural law. The author may willingly grant a benevolent indulgence as charity to the freeloader, but that is not an obligation nor an implicit commitment. The right of ownership and the science of justice are irrelevant without a mechanism for enforcement. The Bible gives us a clear understanding of how justice ought to be applied. When possible, claims against one's estate are, be, are to be forgiven. This is especially true when the plaintiff is a brother or sister in Christ. The one thing Christians are not to do is to resort to the secular courts. If the cost or claim is of such a kind it cannot be forgiven, then the wrong must go to the person and seek to have the issue addressed or reconciled in a one-to-one -one meeting. If a resolution of the issue is not possible through this channel, then the plaintiff asks for the assistance of an elder of the church, that is, a person who has familiarity with the claims of the kind experience. When this does not work, a full court must be convened, and this is a court of the people, not a court of the government. Communities of justice have available to them two types of courts. The people's courts are either geographical or jurisdictional in nature, they're based on geography or jurisdiction, or they are sectorial or service or work based. If based on a business issue, which is sectorial, Within a particular economic sector, the court convened is an artisan's court. This discussion only applies to the church, or more specifically to a community of justice. That is, this court system, this application of justice, only has valid value if we are within a community of justice. It doesn't work with secular society where it has only the secular courts based on power. Communities of justice are places organized in a matrix which is 12 levels high and 12 sectors wide, each sector being a type of occupation or occupation class. A claim of a buyer against a plumber or other seller can be settled between the buyer and the seller or be handled within the sector through the agencies of an artisan, artisan's court, which is also called 
or referred to as a limited counsel, the court convened a scale to the level of the complaint or charge. If the dispute is very local, then the local limited counsel is convened. If the dispute involves more um, a greater area than the between say neighbors, then a higher limited uh, council is convened. For example, if this is a national issue um, impacting the entire nation, then the national council is brought into session. If the unsettled claim spans different economic sectors, then a general council or general court is called. The court that represents the scale of the issue is the court before which the action is convened or brought before. Liberty is not the issue in a community of justice ever. What is at issue is what value have you created that is being questioned. What value have you to spend or compensate others for as regards the thing you wish to obtain that is being claimed by others? Are you paying the full value of the product or service you have contracted to purchase or not? If not, who is to pick up the balance? If you or someone is challenging the ownership rights of the author of that equity, then it becomes a matter for the courts to adjudicate. In other words, the courts of justice, of a community of justice, deal with issues of who owns what and who is expected to pay for what. The authors of equity, the authors of value, are the ones that own the value and they get to decide the dispensation of that value or those things of value. And this is what the court decides, who owns what, who is the costs properly accounted for or to. So courts determine outstanding debits and assign disputed value to the proper accounts. If the dispute is not able to be settled by a simpler, simple accounting entry, then additional incremental steps will be decreed and implemented as determined necessary by the court. At this point, justice must introduce other options such as containment in secure environments. This is mostly where we get into issues of violence and particularly murder, which aren't really dealt with here. The point is, we cannot have freedom if we have justice, and we cannot have justice unless we live in communities of justice, which are, by definition, communities that forego freedom to utilize a scientific theory of justice as implemented by communities of justice.